stand with me as we hear God's word read this morning? Our scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples after, excuse me, let's try that again. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. It's the scribes argued with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. The spirit saw him. Immediately it convulsed convulsed the boy, and he fell down on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirits, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that this is your word. We recognize that the the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Father, would you give us eyes to see today? Would you help us to understand? Would you bless our time in your word We pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 944. 944, Mark chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 14 in just a bit. One theologian has rightly observed that Moses' description in Deuteronomy chapter 11, um, chapter 11, verse 11, of a land of hills and valleys could well describe the life of a Christian. Hills and valleys. Many of us know about that. We know the highs of a, of a mountaintop experience, right? The blessings that come along with, with such experiences, those joys. But we also have experienced the lows the lows of the valley, the pain, and the suffering. Faithfulness may seem easier on the hill, on the mountains, but less so in the valley. 
As we looked last week, we, uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, we saw the transfiguration of Jesus on Mount Hermon. Now, today, as we look at verses 14 through 29, these three disciples that were with Jesus come back down off of the mountain. Off of their mountaintop experience, they come back down to reality. Come back down to a fallen world. And we see this stark contrast between the two stories, between the first part of chapter 9 and now here in verses 14 through 29. We see this contrast between the glory of God on the mountain versus the the pain of satanic possession. From the mountain now to the valley, or as Warren Wearsby says, from the glory of heaven to the attack of hell. Well, as we come to this text, we first see a dispute has arisen in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Now, the, the they here, they came to the disciples, is Jesus and the three disciples. They came there and they saw the scribes arguing with the other disciples. Now we see again that the The scribes are present here. One thing we've learned about the the scribes, about the religious leaders of the time, that they were not for Jesus. They were critics of Jesus. They were looking to find something wrong with Jesus. Uh, This argument or this dispute, as we will see, was concerning the disciples' inability to cast out the demon from this young boy. Even after these disciples had been given authority by Jesus to do just that. We saw that back in chapter 6. Now it's unlikely, or it is likely, excuse me, to think that the scribes would have used this as an opportunity to not only question the disciples, but question Jesus, right? Here is Jesus who who says that he's uh, this and that, the, the Messiah, and now his disciples who were commissioned can't even cast out this cast out this demon. But as Jesus arrived, the focus shifted from arguing. Look at verse 15. And immediately, that's that uh, common word there in, in Mark's gospel. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And so immediately, Jesus shows up and everybody's attention goes to Jesus. And, and rightly so. Some have suggested that that maybe the the greatly amazed part is because uh, of the lingering effects of the transfiguration on Jesus. There's no um, way to be be sure of such a thing. But they certainly identified correctly that Jesus was there and there was something different, something special about Jesus. And Jesus steps into this conflict with a question in verse 16 and he asks them, what are you arguing about? At this point, the disciples and the scribes were the two people who were arguing. That's what the text tells us. But as we look at verse 17, it is not the disciples, nor is it the scribes who communicate what they're arguing about. Both of them go silent. Both of them don't don't speak up to tell Jesus what was wrong. Instead, someone else answers and presented the problem. Look at verse 17. And And someone from the crowd answered him. And they said this, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. 
And whenever he, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So to fill Jesus in, the father of the boy is the one who speaks up, right? The scribes and the disciples are, are arguing about this. And Jesus shows up and says, what are you guys arguing about? And the father's like, actually, I know what's going on here. It's, it's my son. I brought him here. And, and I asked for the, the demon to be cast out and they could not do it. Um, before we get there, we've, we've noted this before, but the father says, I brought my son to you. We, we've seen this before that what, what do people do when they have a need, when they have a loved one in need? In, in Mark's gospel, we see this over and over again. What do they do? They take their loved one to Jesus. That's so instructive for us, isn't it? It's such a simple but, but powerful way of how do, what do we do with our, our loved ones and our friends who have needs? What, do we, what can we do? You can't heal them. Right here, you can't cast the demon out. What do you do? You bring them to Jesus. And you can do that. And I can do that. Right? That's the beauty of this. And that's what he does. He comes to Jesus. And obviously, Jesus is on the mountain. So the, the other nine disciples are there. Right? That's the, where this man, he finds these nine disciples that are left, and he asks for this, um, and they can't do it, right? That the boy is possessed by this demon who's terrorizing him, and he, he can't, the, the disciples can't heal him. He, he, was, uh, he was unable to speak because of this demon. He would be thrown down. He, the boy would foam and grind his teeth and become uh, rigid. Like this is a description of a seizure that we're seeing here. That, that's the, the impact of, of what the demon was doing to this young boy. Again, here in Mark chapter 9, we see the reality of the spiritual world. Now, clearly, not all physical problems are the cause of demonic activity. That's not what we're saying here. But we are saying that clearly demons are real. Clearly, they are active. Clearly, they seek to afflict or inflict. Clearly, they are out to harm and to destroy. So given this scenario, the scriptures also tell us this, though, that, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Right? We, we, are, we are no match. We, humanly, are no match for a demon. We aren't. But the scriptures also tell us that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So thank God for, for the Spirit of God who lives with us. Satan and his demons were seeking to destroy the boy. That, that is, that is the, the role of Satan. That is the, the objective of Satan. John chapter 10, verse 10 tells us that a thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus has come what? To have life, that we may have life, and have it abundantly. Satan hates God. <laughs> He hates God's creation. So what does he want to do to it? He wants to destroy it. That is Satan's intent. Creation, God's creation, God's uh, people. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 say, say this. Uh, Jesus, or God, God says, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created him. What's the point? The point is this, is that because men and women, men and women, just a side note in our cultural moments, there are only two sexes, there are only two genders. I'm not being funny. This is the scriptures. This is not a political argument. It's not a cultural argument. It is a biological argument. It is a biblical argument. It's an argument from reality, right? Because men and women are created in the image of God, Satan hates them. Satan will love nothing more than to destroy men and women. To confuse men and women about who they are, about what they are, about what they, what they uh, image. But because they are created in the image of God, Satan hates us and he wants to destroy us. So an attack on a person, a demonic attack on a person or abuse of a person or self-harm that we do to, to ourselves is an attack on the image of God. Satan loves that. Satan is, is all about that. That's what we saw in chapter five with the man who was demon-possessed in the Gerizines. He was harming himself. It's, it's an attempt to destroy the image of God. It's to scar the image of God on mankind. This was the intent of the demon on this boy. But Jesus was not gonna have it. After hearing the description and hearing the failure of his own disciples, Jesus addressed their unfaithfulness in verse 19. And he said to them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. It's thought here that Jesus was referring to his own disciples as the faithless generation. Saying that they were, they were just like the current generation. This, this faithless generation. They had acted without faith, without believing. And then he uses two rhetorical questions. How long am I to be with you? And how long am I to bear with you? One commentator summarizes this to say, basically, will you ever learn? Will you ever get it? Will you ever understand what, what's happening here? What, what I'm doing? Sinclair Ferguson writes this, Mark vividly captures the pressures and frustrations of Christ's life in these verses. On the mountaintop, he had been faced with the spiritual short-sightedness of the disciples. Now here in the valley, he was confronted with their failure. See, the disciples had failed to cast out the demon, not because there was a lack of effort, but a lack of faith. Now, it's not hard to see the failures of the disciples, right? The gospel writers uh, clearly communicate to us throughout the pages of the gospels, the failures of the disciples. Yet we too are in danger of faithlessness, of knowing about Jesus, maybe even knowing Jesus and not walking in faith, not actually believing not actually trusting, not actually depending on him and him alone. We might give verbal assent to say, I believe on Jesus or I trust Jesus. But choice after choice, circumstance after circumstance, they call that 
into question. If we're actually trusting him, if we're actually depending upon him, or are we depending on our self? Well, from there, Jesus turns his attention to the boy. And in verse 19, he says, bring him to me. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground, on the ground, and rolled about foaming at the mouth. When the spirit saw Jesus, what was the response? It was to try to harm the boy more. James chapter 2 tells us that even the demons know who Jesus is. Even the demons are aware of God and they tremble. Verse 21, and Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood, it has cast him into fire, into water to destroy him. Stop there. Jesus was asking about the son. And by doing this, he's giving the father this opportunity to, as uh, Kent Hughes, uh, the writer Kent Hughes says, to unburden himself, right? to, to give his, his concern to Jesus. T- tell me about it. G- give, your, give your burden to me. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting your cares upon him, for he cares for you. This is Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, right? And give what? Give your burdens to me. This is Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving this opportunity to, to say, give your burden to me. Tell me about your son. Tell me about your problem. Entrust it to me. This is a great example for us. Having answered Jesus' question, the father begged for his help. Look at verse 22. The rest of verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice notice something there. Have compassion on us and help us. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. That he uses a plural there? Isn't he asking for his son to be healed? Have compassion on him? Help him? Now he's so closely identifying with his son that to help his son is to help him. And any parent in the room would pray a similar prayer, right? We would know what that is. That kind of care for our child is care for me. That kind of care for the one that we love is care for me. The imperative here that the man is is asking, crying out for for help. But in the Greek, the word order is actually reversed and it would say something like this. Help us at once, having had compassion on us. Which is to, to say that the compassion of Jesus is what led to the help. That the, the father saw that Jesus was compassionate and therefore he would help. It's because of the compassion of Jesus that help is available. But we also see something else about the father's request. The the father mistakenly presents the request as a could and not a would. Meaning, look look at the beginning of his statement there. But if you can do anything. But if you can do anything. 
Now, back in Mark chapter 1, there was a leper. And a leper comes to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 40, and he says this to Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. Do you hear the difference? The difference is substantial. The issue was not and is not about the ability of Jesus to heal. Jesus is able to heal. That's not the question. The real issue, the real issue is, is for, for Jesus with this man, is about the faith of the man, as we'll see in just a second. The faith is the, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. So Jesus responds, and, and he says this, if you can, all things are possible to believe. Right? So, so Jesus responds to the man with the same words that the man uses. Right? The man says, if you can, Jesus. Like, if you can do anything. And the, Jesus' response is, that's not actually the, the question. The question is, if you can believe, then all things are possible. Can you believe that? Now, this verse is instructive. It's instructive to the Father, and it's instructive to us. But it has been abused. It's been abused to, to, to think things like, if you believe it enough, then God will grant you what you ask. As if God is on the hook for whatever you think you can have faith in. God is not on the hook for whatever you have faith in. That's not how this works. God is only on the hook, so to speak, for the things that he has promised, not the things that you and I want. You read your Bible, there, there's no evidence that God's gonna answer all your requests the way you want those requests to be answered. There is no confidence in such a promise. There, there is no promise to that effect. But what we can know is that God answers our prayer according to his will. Yes and Amen. But here in verse 23, Jesus responds again with the same language. If you can, if you're able to believe, then all things are possible. So in order for the boy to be healed, Jesus is saying the father needed to believe. To believe what? Danny Aiken writes it this way. The key is not the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith. Not the potency of our faith, but the person of our faith faith, the person our faith is in. So Jesus is calling this, this father <clears throat> to believe in him, to put his faith in Jesus, to know that Jesus is able and to put his faith in him. And to that, we see this cry of faith by the father. Look at verse 24, immediately, right? Again, Mark with the immediately. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, and these are some of the most familiar uh, words in, in this, in this uh, well, in the, in the gospels, but I believe, help my unbelief. And that is a great prayer. It is a great prayer that, that that's how he responded. He, he recognized that, that his faith was weak he recognized his spiritual weakness. He recognized that, that he had an imperfect faith. But what did he do? He looked in the right direction. He looked to the right person. I mean, th though his faith had been shaken, 
Right? Here, here, the disciples couldn't do it. Here, the boy is, is being possessed and tormented. He can't do nothing. His faith is, is waning or his faith is weakened. And yet here, hearing Jesus, his response is, yes, Jesus, I believe. But to be honest, there's times when I don't believe. So help my unbelief. It's a good prayer to pray. And in fact, this prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, is a prayer of faith. It's a believing prayer. Is it weak? Yes. But is it real? Yes. James Montgomery Boyce says of biblical faith that it contains three elements. The first element is the content of what must, must be believed. There's, there's a content to faith. Biblical faith actually is rooted in something. It's not just rooted in whatever you want. That there, there's something that it, it is rooted in. Secondly, there's an acceptance or an assent to that content. And we agree with that content. And third, there's a trust in or a commitment to Jesus as the heart of the teaching or the heart of the content. Right? Biblical faith is rooted in Jesus. Right? It's rooted in what the scriptures say and Jesus being at the heart of it. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our confidence because of who he is, because of what he has done for you and me on the cross, paying our penalty, dying our death, offering eternal life to all who would repent and believe. Well, this father's prayer was certainly a prayer of faith, and we know that because of what Jesus does next. Look at verses 25 through 27. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Right, so it's kind of one last sign of rebellion against Jesus and, and hatred for the boy. The demon seeks to inflict him again before coming out and leaving the boy as what appeared to be dead. But verse 27 comes and Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Literally, verse 27 says, Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. <laughs> Danny Aiken writes this, satanic powers bring death, but divine power brings resurrection life. That's what Jesus does, right? Jesus raises the dead, raises the spiritually dead. We see that metaphorically here. Mark concludes this section with an interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Verse 28, and when he, they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now we've come to expect this of the disciples. When they have a question, they wait till the crowd leaves, and then they go privately with Jesus and say, by the way, we don't understand what just happened, right? Uh, maybe there's a little pride there, or maybe they, they want to get some clarity. Whatever the case is, they asked him, why could we not cast it out? It doesn't seem like such a bad question, but actually the question itself betrays some of the problem. Why could we not cast it out? The disciples' faith was misplaced. 
It was in themselves. They were trusting their ability to cast out the demon. Verse 29, Jesus says to them, this kind, talking about the casting out of the demon, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some of your Bibles in different manuscripts say, and fasting. But Jesus' point is they were lacking faith. They were lacking faith in Jesus. They believed that because they were part of casting out demons before, that they could do it again. They, they forgot who was actually casting out the demon and by what power the demons were being casted out. They were not de dependent upon God, clearly. They were trying to do this in their own strength. They were not coming to God in prayer, seeking his power to cast out these demons. They were not dependent on God, but they were dependent on themselves. Does that ever describe you or me? <laughs> they were not dependent on God, they were dependent on themselves. How many times has that been true? How many times in our life have we, we tried to do something and it fails miserably? What we come to find out is that we're operating in our own strength. We're trying to do it on our own. We think that somehow we could, we could do it. We could, we, we could manufacture it or we could manipulate it or we could have the power to do so. And yet, in fact, this is God's work. The disciples had some things to learn about faith and prayer. Uh, in the book of James, there's a couple things about the connection between faith and prayer. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And then verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith. So yes, ask God. Yes, pray your prayers, but how do you do it? You do it in faith. Because if you don't do it in faith, James says, you're an unstable man. Chapter four, verses two and three says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What's the wrongly? Well, we already saw it in chapter one, verse five. Chapter five, verse 15 talks about the prayer of faith. Chapter 5, verse 16 talks about the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Our prayer connected with faith has power, but the, the prayer of the righteous is powerful, not because of the person praying, but because of the person to whom we are praying. That makes all the difference in the world. You, you can pray a prayer and it have no power. Because it's actually not looking to Jesus. It's actually not looking to the right, in the right direction. The power is not in us. This is a lesson that the disciples needed to learn, and so do we. Again, Kent Hughes writes, the faith that brings power is a faith that prays. And why is that? Because prayer is a demonstration of dependency. When we pray, what we are saying to God is, I need you. There's a story of a composer named Sebastian Bach who would write uh, a J, two J's at the top of uh, a sheet of music before he would compose uh, a new song. And the two J's uh, stood for a Latin phrase uh, that meant, Jesus, help me. So before he would begin his work, he would commit it to recognize that I need help to do this. I can't do this on my own. 
I can't make this song on my own. I can't compose this thing on my own. Maybe every day we should figuratively draw a JJ over our day and say to Jesus every day, Jesus, help me. This was his way of acknowledging his need and the help that only Jesus could give. Let me offer just four quick takeaways from this passage. First is that Jesus has been given all authority and all power. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says just that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That that is not in question. The power of Jesus is not in question. That that should be, um, for the Christian, that should be well established already. Therefore, second takeaway, our prayers are not asking if he can, but if he will. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that he is able to do far more abundantly than we could ask or think or imagine according to the power at work within us. The power or the the, the prayer of faith or, or believing prayer is certainly not perfect prayer, but it is prayer that is centered on God and in his will for his people. One consideration Note the contrast between, uh, again, this man's prayer and Jesus' prayer in the garden, right? So this man prays, uh, Lord, if you can. And what was Jesus' prayer in the garden? Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that, that God's ability was not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is is his will. Is this what God actually wants? Our prayers are not asking if he can, but if he will. Thirdly, faithlessness is a result of looking to ourselves in our ability instead of looking to Jesus. Our, Our problems can often be traced back to whom we are trusting in. Is it in ourself or is it in Jesus? And finally, our last takeaway, God is faithful. This should give us some encouragement. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't it good to know that God is faithful? Now, some of us can relate with the disciples, trying to do things on our own. Some of us can relate with this, this man, praying a prayer, saying, God, if, if, if you could do that, that'd be great. Instead of saying, if you will. Some of us can identify with that. And so hearing these words, at the times when we're faithless, he remains faithful. God, God is patient with us. None of us have arrived. None of us are the perfect prayers. None of us have believing prayer all nailed down. We've struggled. You'll struggle. I struggle. This is a, a lifetime pursuit of growing in our prayer life. But as we pray, as we grow in our prayer, we can know that God is faithful. He is patient and he's gracious. But the character of God is not to be taken advantage of. We don't say that to say, well, it doesn't really matter or or God God doesn't really care. No, no, he does care. It's actually the character of God that motivates us to want to obey him, right? It's not to take advantage that he's gracious and he'll, he'll still answer your prayer or something. No, no, no. It's to say, man, that's how good God is. 
That's how good God is that he's faithful. Even when I'm faithless, what do I want to do with that? I want to, I want to be more faithful. I want to honor him with my prayer. I want to honor him with how I bring my requests to him. And the more we know him, the more we will trust him. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help today. We recognize that the Gospels are, are an account of, of the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, in and through people. This is a, a real historical event that happened. That there was this young boy with an unclean spirit. There was a, a group of disciples who were faithless. There, there was a, a father who had a, issues of, of spiritual weakness. Fathers, we read a, a story like this, we, we can find ourselves there too. And as we leave a story like this, we, we leave thankful for a God who cares for the needs of your people. Thankful for a God who can heal. Thankful for the, the lessons that we can learn about faith. God, we leave with a, a, a sense of, of wanting to be found faithful in our prayers. So God, we collectively say this morning, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. May this week we be found faithful. And as we pray, we would pray in faith. And as we pray, we won't pray if you can, but if you will. Would you help us to do that this week? For your glory and for our good. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.